Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. Alright, on with the show. In the words of the legendary Paul McCartney, The party's on, the feeling's here, that only comes this time of year. Simply having a wonderful holiday history time. I may have changed some of the lyrics at the end, but you get the point. This is the time of year when Santa comes to town, so what better way to celebrate than by looking at Canada's rich holiday traditions? From the first tree to just how Saint Nick got his famous postal code, there are some wonderful tidbits to share. So on Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, and Cupid, well, you know the rest. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Today, I'm going to do things a little differently. Instead of looking at a single topic chronologically, I'm going to jump around a bit and give you a stocking full of fun historical snacks. And before you get a sentimental feeling, let's begin by rocking around that Christmas tree. The modern Christmas tree originated in Central Europe sometime in the 16th century when Protestant Christian reformer Martin Luther is said to have added lighted candles to an evergreen tree. According to the story, he was the first person to be inspired to do this as he walked home through a forest one winter evening. He was in awe of the stars twinkling amongst evergreen trees, so he put one up in his home with lighted candles on the branches sometime in the early 1500s. However, beyond the story, there's no real evidence that he actually did this. German Lutherans in 1539 were the first to officially place lighted candles on an evergreen, and it's from them that Canada gets its connection to the Christmas tree. At a party hosted by the Baroness Riddessel for British and German officers on December 24, 1781 in Sorrel, Quebec, the first official Christmas tree in North America was erected. The previous years had been tough for the Baroness and her family. Her husband, Frederick, was taken prisoner during the American Revolutionary War in 1777, and he wouldn't be released until 1780. During those dark years, the Baroness had seen men terribly injured in battle, many of whom she attended to by doing what she could to help, including providing food, but it was a challenging time. She had also nearly died in a fire at her home. By 1781, her husband was home and better days were on the horizon and she hoped to brighten everyone's mood with a Christmas tree. It would also be the first time in four years the Baroness would be able to celebrate with a party, so after her guests finished their English pudding, she had a balsam fir tree cut from the forest outside and put in the corner of the dining room. It was decorated with fruits and lit with candles, making it the first official Christmas tree in North America. 
Now at this point, I would like to stress that it takes a particular set of skills to put lit candles on your Christmas tree, so unless you know what you're doing, maybe skip that part of the tradition. After the Baroness's efforts, Christmas trees didn't spread like wildfire across the nation. Sure, German immigrants did set them up during the late 18th and early 19th centuries, but the tradition expanded quite slowly. Canada's upper class for the most part ignored the tradition until Queen Victoria and her German husband, Prince Albert, put up a tree in Windsor Castle in 1841. The monarch was a trendsetter. First, she made the white wedding dress a staple of matrimonial union, and then made Christmas trees fashionable so the tradition picked up steam in Canada. By the mid-19th century, Christmas trees were on display in many Canadian homes and, until the early 20th century, candles, fruits, and crafts were used to decorate them. During this time, the tradition was helped by innovation when in 1896 the first electrically lit Christmas tree was unveiled in Westmount, Quebec, 16 years after Thomas Edison introduced the first outdoor electric Christmas light display. Businesses around Canada strung up Christmas lights on their windows in major cities around 1900. And as homes became wired with electricity in the 1910s and 1920s, trees were decorated with electric cone-shaped bulbs and cardboard and wax ornaments began to appear. Tinsel and tin reflectors were also sold in the 40s and added more sparkle and Christmas magic. Then, 10 years later, bubble lights became very popular. They produced bubbles in lit glass tubes. My parents had these lights when I was a kid and they were very pretty on a tree as they simulated candles. They were also, apparently, a pretty big fire hazard, and that's why they're not sold anymore. If you've been to Canada's vast and beautiful wilderness, it would come as no surprise that it is one of the world's biggest exporters with 70,000 acres of Christmas tree farms, from which 3 to 6 million trees are harvested, and about half are exported across North and Central America. As large as the industry is now, it wasn't always the case. Over a century ago in 1898, Yarmouth, Nova Scotia began to ship out Christmas trees to the United States. In 1905, the first trees from New Brunswick were sent out. As the tradition became more popular, Christmas tree exports increased and by 1924, 50 carloads left Lunenburg, Nova Scotia and the entire province exported 300,000 trees in total. People harvested and sold the trees for 2.3 cents on average, but the companies they sold to heavily marked up the price and made massive profits, and that began to worry forestry companies in Canada. One forestry company representative said in the 1920s, cutting down the young trees is the worst form of timber waste. Canadian Christmas tree exports reached a high of 3.8 million in 1957, and from then on the industry began to decline as other countries started to produce their own. Exports fell to 2.6 million in 1963 and 1.8 million in 1967. Today, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and Ontario account for about 80% of Canada's Christmas tree production, with 2,400 farms valued at $78 million. The land used to harvest all those Christmas trees is land that First Nations lived in freely prior to the arrival of European settlers. After Samuel de Champlain established Quebec City in 1608, there was a concentrated effort by Jesuit missionaries to convert indigenous people to Christianity. Some of the earliest converts were the Wendat, also known as the Huron, who relied on trading with the French, who refused to trade with First Nations that did not have relations with missionaries. So to get the weapons and tools that gave them an advantage over other nations, the Wendat were open to missionaries visiting their settlements. 
One method of conversion was to relate the story of Jesus' birth to the Wendat. Jean de Berbru, a Jesuit missionary, adapted the story which became the Huron Carol in 1641. Written in the language of the Wendat, it is titled as Jesus Ahatonia, translated as Jesus He is Born. In the carol, Jesus is wrapped in a rabbit skin, and rather than a manger, he is born in a lodge made of broken bark. The three wise men became chiefs, and they didn't bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Instead, they arrived with fox and beaver pelts for the baby. The carol slowly spread across the Wendat in the 1650s and 1660s. On Christmas Eve in 1668, a Wendat girl named Therese, only 14 years old, sang about the birth of Jesus as she died. Her death was likely due to the European-born diseases which many of the Jesuit missionaries transmitted without realizing it. Francois-Joseph Le Mercier, a priest, wrote a letter to his superiors in France, detailing how she sang as she died, and in this is the earliest written mention of the Huron Carol, introduced 20 years earlier to the Wendat people. By this point, the Wendat population had fallen from 25,000 people before European arrival to 12,000 in the 1660s. In 1697, the Wendat settled in a village north of Quebec City called Lorette. The village exists today and is known as Wendaki, but for centuries, each Christmas, the Wendat people gathered in the Catholic Church and sang the Huron Carol in their own language. The Huron Carol is spread and inspired four picture books, a national series of stamps in 1977, and appeared on several albums by musicians such as Heather Dale, Crash Test Dummies, and Bruce Coburn. However, the Wendat language slowly disappeared due to the prevalence of French in the area, and by the 1850s, there were no living speakers. But one of the few occasions when the language was heard was when the Huron Carol was sung at Christmas because it continues to be sung in Wendat, even though many don't understand the words. That was the story of the Huron Carol, but did you know that the first official Christmas carol in Canadian history was published by James P. Clark in 1853? Clark was an organist and composer, cited as the first person to receive a bachelor's degree in music in North America. As the conductor of the Toronto Choral Society, he published A Canadian Christmas Carol in Anglo-Canadian Magazine in 1853. It's not an easy carol to find these days, but it begins as this. No shepherds in the field tonight, no flock up on the wold. Through the shivering forest, brand chest moans, the north blast fierce and cold, but gloriously the white stars gleam, as on that holy event, when the herald angels chorus swelled through the bright Judean heaven. Personally, I prefer Bob and Doug McKenzie's 12 Days of Christmas. There aren't many Christmas carols or songs I can handle, but their version is the greatest Christmas song of them all. The original dates to sometime in the 1700s, and is believed to be either English or French. The earliest known written version of the song appeared in 1780. Many locations, including Sweden, France, and the Faroe Islands, have their own version of the song, which has been recorded by everyone from Frank Sinatra to the Muppets. As I mentioned, the best version, in my opinion, is by Bob and Doug McKenzie, the two hoser characters created by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. Their Great White North segments on SCTV exploded in popularity in 1980 and resulted in a comedy album, movie, toys, commercials, and much more. Their 12 Days of Christmas was released on the album The Great White North in 1981, which was a huge success, selling 1 million copies and winning a Juno and earning a Grammy nomination, and two songs appeared on the top 40 rock charts, 
Take Off and The Twelve Days of Christmas, which reached number 15 on the Canadian charts. The song follows the duo as they do a comedic rewrite of the popular Christmas Carol. Unfortunately, they only make it as far as day 8 before they decide the song is simply long enough. And at the end of the song, Bob compares it to Stairway to Heaven. And I think that's a pretty good comparison. Less than a decade before Bob and Doug made the best Christmas song ever, popular singer-songwriter from Newfoundland, Bob Daveridge, wrote The Mummer's Song as a tribute to a centuries-old custom in danger of disappearing. Mummering originated in England and Ireland and eventually found its way to Newfoundland and Labrador. Also known as jannying or mumming, it involves a group of friends dressing in disguise and visiting homes during the 12 days of Christmas. As they knock on the door, the mummers ask, Any mummers allowed in? If the mummers are welcomed into the home, they give informal performances. This can include music, jokes, dancing, and more. The hosts in the home then must determine the identity of the mummers. The mummers will try and fool the host by cross-dressing, stuffing their costumes to change their body shape, speaking while inhaling, wearing masks, and more. But once the identity of the mummers are confirmed, they are offered food and drink. And the idea is by lifting the mask, the stranger becomes a friend. In the past, mummers carried codfish bladders blown up like balloons. They were filled with pebbles to create a rattling sound. It's now more common for these ugly sticks to be broomsticks with bottle caps attached to them. A rubber boot is added at the bottom to create a head with tin cans and a mop of hair. In 2009, the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador's Intangible Cultural Heritage Office established the Mummers Festival. This is held in St. John and includes a Mummers Parade. In 2011, mummering was designated as a distinctive cultural tradition and practice by the Newfoundland and Labrador government. Along with mummering, Newfoundland also has given us the unofficial holiday of Tibbs Eve. Tibbs Eve, also known as Tips Eve or Tipsy Eve, originated from the character of Saint Tib, described as a woman of loose morals from a 17th century English play. The irony is that no such character could be a saint and could not have a feast day. So with no actual Tibbs Day, there can be no Tibbs Eve, and that's called non-time, because it's a day that will never come. To say something will happen on Tibbs Eve is to say that it will never happen. Tibbs Eve eventually found its way to Newfoundland, where it was called a day that was neither before nor after Christmas. But it became an unofficial holiday around the Second World War, occurring sometime between the old year and the new, and eventually simply became associated with December 23rd. The reason it fell on that night was that it was the first night during Advent when it was appropriate to have a drink, hence Tipsy Eve. It's a day to drink and eat at kitchen parties and bars with the people you want to celebrate with, like friends, before obligations take over. Around 2010, bar owners in St. John's adopted the holiday by hosting Tibbs Eve events. It was also organized into a fundraising effort in Newfoundland by organizations such as the St. John's Women's Centre when they host the Shine Your Light on Tibbs Eve event. Today, the tradition of Tibbs Eve has spread outside Newfoundland to places like Nova Scotia, Toronto, and Northern Alberta. Another common Newfoundland tradition is the Yule Log. It is now a very tasty dessert enjoyed during the Christmas season, but when it first emerged in Europe, primarily England, it wasn't something you ate, but something you burned. On Christmas Eve, typically at sunset, a large block of birch wood was laid across the back of a fireplace. The family waited until the fire consumed the entire log, and once it was gone, 
they would go outside and fire their muskets as a prelude to Christmas. As settlers from the United Kingdom came to Newfoundland and Canada, they brought the tradition with them. On December 24, 1770, a British Army officer named Captain George Cartwright wrote of how residents of Lodge Bay, Labrador celebrated Christmas Eve. He said, At sunset, the people ushered in Christmas, according to the Newfoundland custom. In the first place, they built up a prodigious large fire in their house. All hands then assembled before the door, and one of them fired a gun, loaded with powder only. Afterwards, each of them drank a dram of rum, concluding the ceremony with three cheers. These formalities being performed, they retired to their house, got drunk as fast as they could, and spent the whole night drinking, quarreling, and fighting. The Yule Log was sometimes called a birch junk and was selected to last 12 days of Christmas. It was hauled home and cut into three-foot chunks to fit into the hearth at the base of the chimney. Now, a very interesting part of the tradition involved the Yule Log being taken out of the fireplace and thrown over the saddle of the roof to bring protection from fire through the coming year. Unfortunately, my research didn't tell me just how many fires were started because someone couldn't quite get that burning Yule Log completely over. Regardless, the tradition of the Yule Log began to disappear with the invention of the stove in the 1870s, but Parisian pastry chefs ensured the tradition was not entirely forgotten by reimagining the log in cake form. Pierre Lecam is widely credited with publishing the first recipe for the Yule Log, a rich air spongy cake sandwiched together with coffee or chocolate flavored buttercream to create that unique log shape. Food is central to many Christmas traditions, and there's one that has since faded, which is unfortunate. It's paying for the Christmas cake. In the 19th and early 20th century, the practice of paying for the Christmas cake was held among family and friends. Using a deck of cards, friends and family played to determine who was going to pay for the flower. The losers of the game contributed money for flour, while the winner didn't pay anything. The next day they played for raisins, with the losers paying for the raisins and the winner not paying at all. The series of games continued each night leading up to Christmas with various ingredients needed for the cake. Once the ingredients were collected, the group came together to bake the cake and enjoy it together at a party. This Newfoundland tradition has mostly vanished now. Now they say the fastest way to someone's heart is through their stomach, and a month before Christmas on December 25th is the feast day of St. Catherine of Alexandria, the patron saint of unmarried women. This is a day to celebrate with taffy. St. Catherine's taffy is a candy made by girls in French-Canadian communities, which they present to boys within the community. The tradition dates back to Marguerite Bourgier, who founded Notre-Dame de Montreal in 1657. She was a nun and teacher in Montreal, and she's credited with creating the tradition as a way of keeping the attention of her young students. Much like paying for the Christmas cake, this tradition has almost disappeared as well. But one thing that will never go away is the tradition of celebrating with loved ones and in Quebec, families come together for a long-established custom that dates back to the 1700s. We have taken a journey through the Christmas traditions of Canada, from the first Christmas tree over 250 years ago to Canada's own history with providing Christmas trees to the world, the Huron Carol and its impact on the Indigenous people, including helping to preserve the Wendat language, and Canada's own deep history with Christmas, and Newfoundland as a place that always seems to have the best traditions. I've never been mummering, but I really want to add it to my bucket list, actually. Same with Tibbs Eve, for that matter. 
but I may hold off on throwing a flaming log over my home. Now coming up, we're going to look at some more Christmas traditions in places like the Canadian North and Quebec, and look at Christmases in fur trading forts where sometimes the Christmas was good, and sometimes there wasn't very much food on the table. And of course, we can't end the episode before talking about Santa Claus, his huge Toronto parade, and of course, that very famous postal code. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We have looked at the many traditions in some parts of Canada. The first Christmas tree and Christmas carols in Canadian history. Now we're going to venture into other areas of Canada to learn about a unique Christmas Eve tradition in Quebec, how Christmas Eve is celebrated in the Canadian North, and what exactly happened on Christmas in the many forts that dotted Canada's landscape centuries ago. Then Santa's going to be stopping by in our history with the Toronto Santa Claus Parade and his very famous postal code of H-O-H-O-H-O. And we might even talk a little bit about Eaton's and Simpson's and their very famous department store displays that were the talk of many towns across Canada during the height of their popularity. And we can't forget about Canada's most famous Christmas tree, the one Halifax gives to Boston every single year to say thank you after an unbelievable tragedy hit the community over a century ago. A réveillon is a long dinner held in the evening preceding Christmas Day and New Year's Eve. Its name descends from the word réveillé, meaning waking, because participation involves staying awake until morning as the meal finishes. Réveillon was first documented in the 1700s in France, but back then it was a night-long dinner party held by French nobles. As time went on, it was adapted into a Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve celebration by French Canadians includes a variety of tortillere and dates back about 200 years. Now, tortillere is a meat pie dish from Quebec, usually made with minced pork, veal or beef and potatoes and washed down with champagne or other sparkling wines. Traditionally, Revillon begins with midnight mass and the party continued until Christmas morning when the children woke up to open presents. Planning began in the middle of November for lavish dishes, the best the family could afford as animals were butchered for the feast and their meat frozen to preserve it. Delicacies such as black pudding and pâtés were also included, but today, Ravillon includes tortier and also lobster from Nova Scotia and lavish dishes such as Swiss roll cakes and more. In the 1990s, Quebec restaurants started to serve Ravillon dinners at a more sociable time. Christmas and New Year's Day's Ravillon differ in the Christmas is traditionally a Christian occasion celebrated within the family, and this tradition is held true even among non-believers. The New Year's Eve, or St. Sylvester, Revillon, on the other hand, is commonly a party with friends and more. In the many provinces of Canada, the ritual of Sink Tuck is also followed. 
Much like Réveillon, this is when families get together, dance, and open each other's gifts. The celebration of Sinktuk is traditionally linked to the winter solstice, and over time it's become associated with Christmas as well. Sinktuk meals include caribou, raw fish, seal, and other traditional foods enjoyed in the Canadian North to celebrate the Christmas season and the halfway point of winter. For two centuries, forts dotted the land that became present-day Canada, from the Hudson Bay to the Pacific coast. In the summer, the posts were hubs of activity, with people coming and going through the spring, summer, and autumn. But during the winter, things changed. It was cold, dark, and, many times, lonely. Yet much like St. Tuck, it was a time to celebrate Christmas and the midway point in winter. Thomas Gorst was a Hudson's Bay Company employee in 1670, working at Charles Fort along Hudson Bay. He wrote of a Christmas attended by many people, including the governor of the Hudson's Bay Company, Charles Bailey. He wrote, 25 being Christmas Day, having for liquor, brandy and strong beer, and food plenty of partridges and venison beside what ye ship's provisions afforded. Now that sounds like a good time, but sometimes there was more than just drinking and meat. Depending on what was available in the cupboards, there was also tasty desserts. A journal entry from 1789 at Manchester House in present-day Saskatchewan reads, This being Christmas morning, our small stock of flour afforded us cake to eat with a little tea and chocolate. Now if the year was bad, there would be few supplies. At the Osnaburg House, located in northern Ontario south of Hudson Bay, a journal records, A poor Christmas day, very little victuals to eat, and nothing to drink but water. Now, victuals is another word for food, such as game birds like turkey. One of my favorite stories related to the fur trading forts and Christmas comes from Paul Kane, one of the greatest painters in Canadian history. A self-educated artist, he trained by copying European masters. He took two journeys into the Canadian West in 1845 and 1846 to 1848. On the second journey, he stayed at Fort Edmonton, and on Christmas Day 1847, there was a very big celebration which started when the flag was hoisted in the best and grandest style. By noon, every chimney in the fort was going full blast, and the smell of cooking filled the air. Everyone sat down for dinner at 2pm in the dining hall, which was the biggest room in the fort, which was warmed by large fires that were never allowed to go out. For Christmas dinner, there wasn't any turkey or canned cranberries. Instead, they ate what they were able to hunt. There was boiled bison hump and dried moose nose with white fish browned in bison marrow. Bison tongue was also enjoyed, as was roast wild goose served alongside potatoes, turnips, and bread. But there were no desserts, Kane wrote. Such was our jolly Christmas dinner at Edmonton, and long will it remain in my memory, although no pies pudding shed their fragrances over the scene. Following dinner, there was a dance and local indigenous people, likely the Cree, joined, as did the voyageurs who wore bright sashes and ornamented moccasins. At the dance, many different languages, including Cree and French, were spoken, while English was predominantly spoken at the dinner table among the higher-ranking members of the fort. Paul Kane said he danced through the night, and then once Christmas was over, it was back to waiting for the long winter to pass. I grew up outside of Edmonton, and I can assure you, in the words of Phil Connor from Groundhog Day, there are some winters here that feel like they are never going to end. That is why the holiday season brightens our spirits as we spend time with loved ones and for children, this can feel magical, especially if Santa is involved. And if you're Canadian, 
you can write him a letter and it goes to a specific address, Santa Claus, North Pole, H-O-H-O-H-O. This is probably the most famous postal code in Canada, and it originates in 1973 when a few Canada Post employees in Vancouver began to answer letters addressed to Santa, which arrived to the undelivered mail office headquarters. Vancouver was the headquarters for Western Canada, and they received 4,000 letters in 1973 alone. There are undeliverable offices for each region in Canada, and with nowhere for the letters to go, because typically the letters were simply addressed to, Santa Claus, North Pole. Canada Post employees decided to bring joy to the lives of Canadian children by replying, and this became a small local effort to start with. But it soon spread across Canada to other Canada Post offices. In 1982, it became a nationwide project with the famous postal code HOHOHO. Postmaster Roy DeBolt had the idea to make Christmas a little warmer and more complete for children who wrote to Santa Claus. Many of the first volunteers were retired Canada Post employees, and between 1982 and 2006, thousands of postage workers, both current and retired, volunteered to answer 14 million letters from Canadian children. By 2010, the number had grown to 18.5 million, and today over 25 million letters from children from all over the world come in, in many different languages, including Braille, and all have been answered by Santa's helpers at Canada Post. The Postal Code is just further proof that Santa Claus has a home in Canada. Speaking of Santa Claus, each year he makes a journey to Toronto to take part in one of the largest parades in North America. The original Santa Claus Parade owes its existence to Eaton's, an iconic chain department store that has been gone now for 20 years. The first parade in 1904 consisted simply of Santa walking a few blocks from Union Station to the Eaton's store in downtown Toronto. One year later, the first official Santa Claus Parade was held on December 2nd, 1905, and consisted of one float. Once again, Santa went from Union Station to the Eaton store. These early parades were a huge hit, and each year, crowds and the number of floats grew. From 1910 to 1912, the parade was held over the course of two days. Starting about 60 kilometers north in Newmarket on Friday afternoon, it stopped overnight at York Mills and then continued to Eaton's on Saturday afternoon. The parade became big enough that in 1913, trained caribou from Labrador were used to pull Santa's sled, and in 1917, Santa arrived in Toronto by plane for the very first time. From the 1920s to the 1960s, the floats used in the Toronto Santa Claus Parade were then reused for the Montreal Santa Claus Parade. Now this stopped in 1969, but resumed again in the 1990s. Pumpkinhead, a rubbery toy bear with orange hair, made his debut in 1947. He was the main character in books published by Eaton's to promote sales. By the 1950s, the parade grew so large that the Eaton's merchandise display department worked all year to build floats, costumes, and displays. In 1952, the parade was televised for the first time, and in 1970, color broadcasts began, and it ran on CBC from 1952 to 1981. Now, Eaton's was the company behind the parade for decades until the late 1970s when the changing retail market cut into the company's profits. By 1982, Eaton's had ended its association with the parade due to declining profits and the high cost of the parade. That's when the Save Our Parade campaign was organized and about 20 corporate sponsors stepped up to keep it running. 
Global TV broadcast the parade from 1984 to 2009, and from 1989 to 1991, Santa appeared from Toronto to delight children in the Soviet Union. Since 2010, the parade has been broadcast by CTV and draws about 500,000 people along its 6.3-kilometer route. It's one of the largest parades in North America and one of the oldest annual parades, much older than its more famous cousin south of the border, the Macy's Santa Claus Parade. Speaking of Edens, along with their legendary parade, the department store was known for its amazing Christmas window displays. From the start of the 20th century to the 1970s, Eaton's and its main rival in Toronto, Simpsons, tried to one-up each other with their window displays. For decades, that rivalry grew and each company tried to outdo the other, especially at their flagship stores in Toronto. Following the Second World War, Eaton's stores around Canada, but primarily in Toronto and Winnipeg, had elaborate displays featuring Christmas scenes and figures which were built by Second World War veterans and aircraft technicians. These animatronic displays were powered by war surplus motors and the figures danced and pranced in the display for three decades. Some families drove hours just to see the displays outside Eaton's and Simpson's stores. The Globe and Mail wrote, You will see a crowd of children intent on the magic world before them. They became so popular that Toronto City officials asked Eaton's and Simpson's to limit the hours the public could view the displays because the crowds on Queen Street were actually slowing down traffic. In 1959, designers Eleanor and Ted Conkle prepared a 12 Days of Christmas display for Eden's in Toronto, which included every single item mentioned in the song. In 1966, Eden's brought in a 34-foot-long model representing the scene of the birth of Jesus Christ from Czechoslovakia that took artist Adolf Jelinek 10,000 hours and over 35 years to paint. Now, as mentioned earlier, the retail world was hit by the 1980s and the displays began to disappear from both companies. Then Simpsons stores were converted to the Bay in the 1980s and by 1991 the name disappeared altogether. Eden's lasted a little bit longer but was bankrupt by the end of the 1990s. Now, Christmas isn't the only holiday celebrated in December. Kwanzaa is an African-American cultural holiday that comes from a phrase in Swahili, Matunda Ya Kwanzaa, which means first fruits. It first emerged in the United States in 1966-67 and has since spread around the world. Kwanzaa draws on many harvest festivals in Africa and it begins on December 26 and continues until January 1st. Soon after Kwanzaa was established in the United States, it spread to Canada and today is widely celebrated throughout the country. Another important holiday is one of the oldest, Hanukkah, which was first widely celebrated in Canada around 1760 when Jews were permitted to immigrate to British North America for the first time. It's believed to be the first non-Christian settler holiday to be celebrated in Canada and it's observed for eight nights and days according to the Hebrew calendar, which may occur at any time from late November to late December in the Gregorian calendar. The festival is observed by lighting the candles of a candle broom with nine branches, also known as a menorah. Each night, one candle is lit until all eight candles are lit together on the final night of the festival. Families get together to sing Hanukkah songs, playing the game of the dreidel and eating oil-based foods such as latkes or potato pancakes and safganiyat, which are pillowy donuts filled with jam. As with other holiday traditions in Canada, the type of food enjoyed depends on where families immigrated from and they celebrate by coming together to socialize, exchange gifts, and eat. 
In 2011, two stamps were issued by Canada Post to honor Hanukkah. Now before I leave you, I want to share one final story about a very special Christmas tree which Halifax gives to Boston every single year. On the morning of December 6, 1917, the French cargo ship SS Montblanc collided with the Norwegian vessel SS Emo in Halifax Harbour. Now the SS Montblanc was loaded with explosives and it caught fire. And after 25 minutes of burning, it exploded with a 2.9 kiloton blast. It was the largest man-made explosion before the atomic bomb and destroyed nearly every building in an 800 meter radius killing 1,700 people and injuring over 9,000. Boston immediately stepped up to help. Train loads of food, furniture and clothing, medical supplies, doctors and nurses arrived in Halifax almost immediately. In 1918, Halifax sent a Christmas tree as a thank you to the people of Boston. And that tradition was revived by the Lunenburg County Christmas Tree Producers Association in 1971, and the Nova Scotia government eventually took over the Christmas tree tradition. Nova Scotia residents nominate trees that are typically balsam fir or red or white spruce that are 40 to 50 feet tall. Once a tree is chosen, which is considered a great honor in the province, the cutting down ceremony is televised and the tree becomes the main part of the Nova Scotia Christmas Parade. After the parade, the tree is sent 1,000 kilometers on a truck to Boston. On November 30th or December 1st, the mayor of Boston and the premier of Nova Scotia light Boston's official Christmas tree together. And after the Christmas season, the tree is put into mulch to help grow gardens in Boston the following year. Faithful friends who are dear to us, who gather near to us once more, I hope through the years we will all be together. If the fates allow, until next time, yourself a merry little holiday time. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.